this is part of a, a broader effort that's on hybridization of hydropower with um, other resources. And so, you know, we see this as a very beneficial new capability that can be added to a set of hydropower plants. But we also have ongoing activities on integrating batteries with hydropower plants of all scales. Welcome back to DAM, the official podcast of Northwest Hydropower. I'm your host, Austin Rohr, and I manage all things communications here at Northwest River Partners. If you're a regular listener, you'll remember that we just recently did an episode with Bryce Yonker of Grid Forward. As implied by the name of his organization, Bryce provided us with a look into the world of grid modernization. Even after an hour's worth of discussion, though, there was only so much ground we could realistically cover and only so many technologies under that grid modernization umbrella that we could explore. Well, it just so happens that a headline recently caught our attention about a unique project in Idaho that combines that technology in the form of a uh, microgrid in a box with hydropower and other energy sources, and one of our very own members, Fall River Electric Cooperative, is playing a big role in testing out this project, along with the folks at Idaho National Laboratory. Not only did we want to learn a lot more about this new and exciting development, we also wanted to figure out, well, can we bring this to the damn listeners for, you know, your education as well? So we started firing off emails, and next thing you know, we wound up with not one, but three guests for today's podcast. Thus far, every episode we've done so far has been a one-on-one, so I'll have to do my best to stay organized as the hosts of this here podcast, but first and foremost, let me introduce you to the people you'll actually want to be hearing from today. So from Fall River Electric, we have Ted Austin, who manages the marketing and public relations at the co-op. Ted, thanks for joining us today. Well, I'm happy to do so, and uh, we're excited to be a part of this podcast. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. And then over at the Idaho National Laboratory, we've got not one but two experts. We have Kurt Myers and Thomas Mosier. And you both have different titles from the looks of it, so maybe we'll kick it off with uh, kind of each of what you do there at INL and and what your work looks like. And uh, maybe we'll go in alphabetical order. I don't know if, uh, Kurt, you maybe want to kick us off on that one. Yeah, thank you, Austin. Yeah, I'm Kurt Myers with Idaho National Laboratory. I am a group lead there at the laboratory in distributed energy and grid systems integration. And I work on, uh, you know, as the title says, systems integration and power systems technologies, you know, including microgrids, uh, distributed energy resources, solar, wind, you know, hydro, uh, other types of generation, and the controls that that, uh, integrate and manage and interact with those uh, grid systems. Excellent, excellent. And then uh, Thomas. Hi, Austin. Uh, pleasure to be with you and your your listeners today. Um, I'm Thomas Mosier. I'm our group lead for energy systems at Idaho National Laboratory, and I also help to steward our hydropower portfolio. So within the hydropower space, we do everything from um, assessing the resource, how much generation we could get from, uh, for example, retrofitting non-power dams, all the way through to understanding how to best utilize that generation um, like we'll get into more today, talking about using small hydropower for black starts and local green support. 
So we got we got a little background on on each of you. I think the the next logical step is to kind of explore, uh, you know, the the places that you work for and and where you're coming from. So uh, maybe we'll go back to uh, go back to Ted here, and uh, maybe you can tell us who Fall River Electric Cooperative is, and and also maybe who you serve as a community as well. Happy to do so. Fall River Electric Cooperative is a small uh, electric utility. We serve customers in mostly uh, eastern Idaho, a small portion of eastern Idaho, and then a a very small slice of western Wyoming, um, which is the home of Grand Targhee Ski Resort, and then uh, a portion of southwest Montana, principally the uh, western entrance to Yellowstone National Park. We have about 20,000 meters on our system, and we have a little over 15,000 customers who are members because, as you know, we are a cooperative. Uh, We were established uh, originally in 1938 in Ashton, Idaho. A group of farmers uh, got together, and uh, the community of Ashton had electricity, and and the farmers uh, out in the rural areas didn't, and so that's kind of the the natural uh, uh, progression of cooperatives. Um, So we're celebrating our uh, we'll be celebrating our 85th birthday uh, a little bit later uh, this year. So we um, we have oh let's see about 20 we cover about 2,500 square miles in our service territory, uh, and we have five electric uh, small electric hydro facilities. Uh, the one in which uh, this particular uh, project uh, was part of the felt hydro um, project that we have two, actually two hydros on the on the Teton River, um, just uh, near Felt, Idaho, which is actually in uh, Teton County, Idaho, and it's located north of uh, the Driggs area. And on the particular day that we did this event, uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful sunny day, um, great weather and a beautiful view of the western slope of the Grand Teton Mountains. So um, that's a little bit of uh, about Fall River Electric. Uh, first off, I'll just say, I, I think Fall River might be uh, the first the first co-op or utility or anyone on this podcast I'm aware of that covers that much of a, a kind of a diverse territory from the sounds of it, uh, being Idaho and a little bit of Wyoming and a little bit of Montana. So uh yeah, really, really excited to have you on and to get your perspective. And, and also, too, um, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because as you, you start mentioning that, I'm sure there's a lot of people who will be listening that are very familiar with Yellowstone. They're very familiar with the Tetons and uh, have probably maybe taken a, a road trip there at some point in their lives. But, uh, yeah, probably have no idea who the electric utility is out there. So I'm, I'm excited to get to kind of make that connection. I, I was just going to say we're excited too. We um, we appreciate the efforts that uh, Northwest River Partners does in promoting uh, hydroelectric facilities in the Pacific Northwest, and and we try to share that uh, the information that Northwest River Partners uh, has with our members, so they're aware of the value of the hydroelectric facilities throughout the Pacific Northwest. Absolutely, and and we appreciate that partnership a whole lot. Um, looking at uh, Looking at the other two we've got here, let's uh, let's dive into Idaho National Lab, and uh, maybe maybe Thomas, you can uh, give us a little insight into who Idaho National Lab is and and kind of what all you guys do over there. So Idaho National Lab is best known as the nation's nuclear energy laboratory. 
But in addition, in addition to advancing clean nuclear energy, we're also advancing a whole host of other clean energy technologies as well. Uh, for example, we have a robust portfolio of research that's supporting hydropower, wind energy, and hydrogen production and utilization, uh, among other technologies. And um, Kurt, I don't know if do you want to add anything about your Department of Defense work and how that fits into INL's portfolio? Sure. Uh, yeah. So one of the things that national laboratories do, you know, including including INL, is what used to be called work for others, and now it's it's uh, special partnership projects. Um, and those have to do with working with other government agencies on their, you know, energy resource in, in planning and our, in research and development, uh, you know, testing and engineering needs. And so INL does a lot of work for others, and that's primarily what my group uh, does in particular is working with the Department of Defense and other U.S. government agencies, and also a little bit with private industry related to that, but to help them with. Uh, you know, all of those different aspects of energy uh, usage and, and uh, resiliency. And so a, a few weeks ago, you know, we started seeing the headlines. We started seeing everything that was coming up about uh, about this exciting project and, and the stories and everything like that. But uh, obviously this doesn't happen overnight, right? So how far back, uh, Thomas, does this project go? Yeah. We've been working in this area for at least eight years now. And, you know, at the start of that time frame, it was really around developing the concept and doing some initial analysis on um, the, the requirements um, to enable small hydropower to perform Black Start. And then also, um, you know, designing the solution. And it was driven in part by um, our collaboration with Idaho Falls Power and their need to provide resilience to their citizens and their customers um, during, you know, outages. Uh, in particular, if we get a, a severe winter storm here in southeast Idaho, uh, so we worked with them. We did some on-site uh, testing of their their uh, facilities, and um, and then that culminated in a field demonstration with them back in uh, spring of uh, 2021. And uh, that was a success. It showed that they could support over eight megawatts of critical electric load during this uh, simulated grid islanded or emergency outage uh, condition. And, um, and then from there, we've kept progressing it forward. And um, in uh, July of this year, we did a second field demonstration with Fall River Electric um, to uh, further refine the concept. And um, and then now we're going to be uh, continuing that work to move it from the demonstration uh, stage to something that's ready for deployment. And maybe I'll just ask too, for, for you, Ted, um, at what point does Fall River Electric kind of catch wind of this and, and get involved? I think it was um, a couple of years ago that we, obviously, we learned about the project that the INL did with Idaho Falls Power. They're just down the road from us, and, and we have a good working relationship with them. Uh, so, uh, and, and we value the, um, 
the INL. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's a fantastic facility doing fantastic work. Um, and so we were, we were excited to have an opportunity to uh, partner with them. I, I think it was delayed at one particular point, uh, and, and, and it was because of our workload. Uh, we, we've seen some significant growth, especially since the pandemic. A lot of people relocating uh, to our area uh, because of the recreation and, and the beauties of the scenic beauties of our area. So we've seen some really significant growth in terms of, of um, new electrical connections and new members coming into our cooperative. And so I believe that we actually had to postpone it for a year uh, because we just didn't have the resources internally to be able to provide the support that INL needed for the project. But it's something that we've known about uh, since the uh, Idaho Falls project uh, that INL worked with them on, and we were excited to 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 uh, be involved in a in a future demonstration. And so from there, maybe I'll jump over to uh, to Kurt next and and just ask you, uh, what is a microgrid? Um, what what is it? What is the purpose of it? And uh, you know, for for even myself, I think uh, it's still something I'm I'm trying to fully wrap my head around. So. Uh, yeah, could appreciate some insight there for sure. Sure. Yeah, there, there are a lot of different uh, you know types and sizes of microgrids, but uh, you know essentially a microgrid is is a uh, you know a localized set of of energy production resources that can you know grid form uh, island you know and operate as an islanded system, uh, typically able to black start itself. Um, but it's also able to combine up with a larger grid system or other microgrids. And so that's really the distinction between, you know, an, an islanded grid system versus a microgrid. A microgrid has the capabilities to tie uh, to other grids and interact, you know, with its controls and, and power sharing. Whereas, a you know, an island grid just operates by itself and doesn't have the, the functions and the controls to enable it to sync up with another another grid system and perform those those interactive functions. Right, right. That uh, that definitely does make some pretty good sense. I think, especially uh, you know, just calling it an island grid, like it ma- makes it pretty easy to kind of understand uh, the differences there. In this case, I know that it's kind of been described as a microgrid in a box. So when you when you say that, um, what are we looking at there, and and kind of what is the advantage of being able to to take something like that, put it in a in a box, and take it mobile? Right. Uh, so the the development of this of this particular system has, you know, kind of been progressing over multiple years. Um, as I mentioned, you know, we do work a lot with the with the military Department of Defense, and we've done you know many many different microgrid projects of different types with with them over many years. And, you know, we got into an overseas program called Operational Energy with one of our uh, Army customers. And we, you know, we proposed some demonstrations a few years ago to kind of get them used to, you know, some of the newer technologies with solar and batteries and things to help uh, save, you know, what diesel fuel usage in some of those remote locations. So we did a smaller version of of what we call the microgrid in the box uh, a few years ago, installed it overseas, and it's been in operation for uh, over a year and a half now. 
Um, we would have had it deployed a, a year before that, but COVID happened, so we had a few delays in, in getting it implemented. Um, and then, you know, it was kind of just made logical sense to us to kind of progress into, a, you know, more advancements in that particular system, scaling up the size, you know, and putting in all of the features that we would envision needing for uh, those types of systems, uh, especially in the military applications, but it can be used in lots of other applications besides that. And and really, it was trying to you know package everything into into shipping containers so that they could be transported you know via cargo ship or air, um, not have a bunch of extra equipment hanging off the you know sides of the container or have it permanently mounted on a trailer or some other transportable system. Um, you know, you, there are systems out there that do that, but in order to be able to ship it around, you have a lot of disassembly and, and you know, things that you have to do to be able to transport it. So we're trying to keep it, you know, all packaged up, uh, have several other features that, that are useful for you know, multiple military applications. Um, and it's really, you know, it's, it's a grid forming uh, battery inverter system with, with all the microgrid controls. Uh, additional layered controls to be able to interact with with uh, larger distribution grids or other microgrids, um, and then you couple it up with other you know deployable resources. So you know maybe you have containers filled with you know accordion solar uh, solar systems or you know all types of of deployable energy components. But you don't necessarily have to have you know, all of your energy systems deployable, you can do things like we did with Fall River, where they ha already have an existing, you know, hydro plan or an exist, we could go somewhere that had existing solar, you know, carports or other systems and use this to help, you know, manage and control, a, you know, a larger set of resources. And that's really helpful clarification, too, because, you know, I've seen some stuff that is described it as a battery. I've seen some stuff that's described it as a, uh, a supercomputer. Um, but, you know, it, it doesn't sound like it's necessarily uh, any one of those things, but rather a, a combination of um, different tools to help, you know, connect to a, an existing grid and get it going. And it also sounds like there's potential to add tools to that arsenal as well. Yes, for sure. And that's where that's where a lot of our research is, you know, these days is in those those control advancements across, you know, distribution systems and trying to get these resources to, you know, be managed and and more effective in their use. As far as, as who this serves, um, maybe you could start out uh, as well, just kind of talking about, you know, generally speaking, who, who can a, a microgrid benefit? You know, who, who, can, who can, you know, see this uh, potentially being used, you know, in their, in their community? I think you could see benefit in, in lots of applications, you know, anybody with critical load uh, uses. So, you know, industry, commercial facilities, you know, even even homeowners or, you know, housing complex areas, um, you know, it, it's all about being able to, you know, provide access to other localized, you know, energy resources. Um, and then but putting in the, the systems to be able to manage those more effectively. You know, I think that's one of the challenges that utilities have in front of them is, you know, 
people putting in a lot of distributed solar. Pretty soon it's going to be a lot more electric vehicles, uh, a lot more heat pumps for, you know, heating and cooling or water heating, things like that. And so the, you know, the, the flow variability of, of power on distribution systems is going to be, you know, quite a bit different than it has been traditionally. So being able to manage those flows and, and bi-directional, uh, power generation on distribution is is a big challenge, and so we're going to need other assets like these to help, uh, you know, shift power and, and help with regulation and other ancillary services. As far as it goes for Fall River specifically, Ted, uh, could you talk about maybe how the the microgrid project could could be beneficial in your community, particularly? Uh, I, I think that um, especially in in the case of uh, emergency situations, um, certainly as um, as has already been mentioned, we do have winter weather in this area, and sometimes it can be severe. In the case that uh, it can take out a um, a portion of our power grid, and when you look at you look at the services in terms of uh, schools and hospitals facilities within our service area, uh, it could certainly help power those, especially if those outages are going to to last a significant amount of time. Uh, and if it was in the wintertime and you're dealing with sub-zero temperatures, which we frequently do, in the in especially in the January, uh, late December, January time period, um, our area is also prone to earthquake activity. Uh, and and obviously um, a significant earthquake could disrupt our power grid and um, microgrid in a box could provide em- emergency services for small portions that are critical for um, uh, critical in those kinds of emergency situations. Along that line, too, I guess one other question that does come up, and I, I think that um, you know, in in some ways. Uh, the framing of the question is important. Uh, I mean, it, I guess it always is when you're asking questions, right? But uh, I think the, fr- the framing here particularly is, is an important one because um, being that this isn't, you know, a, a fixed thing, right? I mean, you could, like we've talked about, you know, you could add tools to this arsenal and um, you certainly could probably scale up and down. But when we're talking about a microgrid, uh, I mean, what, what generally would you say defines it as micro um, in terms of maybe, you know, how many homes or businesses can be served by it? Um, because obviously at a certain point, right, you might start saying, well, that that's just, you know, the grid. <laughs> um, but, but when we're talking about, you know, micro, um, kind of what scale are, are we looking at there? Yeah, you, that's a good question. And, you know, people are also talking about nano grids, you know, which is typically, you know, uh, one home or maybe, a subsection within a home. Uh, microgrids, you know, I think would generally be, uh, you know, more than more than just one home. So probably at least two or three, you know, average home loads or or something a little larger than that. Um, but it can scale clear up to, you know, a whole a whole military base could be could be a microgrid across to, across their distribution system. So pretty wide range of scale. In, uh, in microgrid systems. I guess the next question that I have is, uh, why Fall River? <laughs> right? Um, 
you know, what, what was it specifically about uh, looking at Fall River that um, for, for you guys was like, oh yeah, this is, we got to take this project here. Um, seems like a good fit. I know uh, it sounds like you also worked with uh, Idaho Falls as well. Um, which, you know, we're, we're big fans of them too. Right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I guess that, you know, that's kind of, uh, where I wanted to go next is maybe, you know, what made them a good candidate for, for taking this project over there? Yeah. I'll chime in on that one. Um, you know, across the U S we have a large number of small hydropower plants, um, and, there's no one definition for what a small hydropower plant means, but you know, let's say something in the range of one megawatt up to about 20 megawatts or maybe 30 megawatts um, in there. And um, so our ambition is to uh, develop this technology in a manner such that it is relevant to a large portion of those small hydropower plants. And obviously there might not be a value proposition to deploying it at all of those small value, uh, sorry, at all of those small plants, but at least we want the technology to be applicable to them. And um, so we were interested in partnering with Fall River because um, the felt plant is, uh, is representative of a large portion of those other plants across the country. Um, you know, it's, several decades old. It's um, about uh, six megawatts. It uses a Francis turbine, um, which is the most common type of turbine for this type of hydropower plant. And so um, we thought that we could learn a lot uh, through working with Fall River Electric uh, that we then could apply uh, to our insight to deploy this technology for other plants. And um, it's also uh, you know, comes down to the the role of this hydropower plant um, in the in the grid. It, it was designed to provide cost-effective electricity that then is um, added to or supplied to the the regional grid. Um, but as Ted mentioned, it's adjacent to uh, to Driggs and to Grand Tardy and um, important. Uh, infrastructure in this region of Idaho. And um, so um, by developing uh, and potentially deploying this technology out at the felt plant, um, you know, we not only learn uh, things that help us to deploy it elsewhere, but we also learn things that help Fall River Electric uh, serve their customers better. And that's another question too for, for Ted, you know, I think we touched on it maybe a little bit, but at the same time, you know, for Fall River, why say yes to a project like this? Um, you know, I, as you mentioned, you know, that things are things are growing over there and there's a lot of, you know, kind of tightness on on maybe the, the resources and, and the manpower to devote to this. But uh, at the same time, it sounds like you guys were really excited about it. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, um, what you saw as the, the reason to, you know, go along with it and, and get involved. Well, I think as I mentioned before, um, you know, we value the relationship with INL, not only the relationship that we have, but the relationship that that um, uh, that the site has in all of Eastern Idaho, and the value that it brings to all of the communities in Eastern Idaho, and and the workforce that is there in the projects that they work on. 
We also have a very progressive-minded uh, CEO, Brian Case, our CEO and general manager, and our board of directors, which are obviously because we're cooperative, they're members, they're customers, they're members of our cooperative, and they too are very progressive-minded. Um, you know, we um, just in the past couple of years, we have purchased a, a Tesla electric vehicle, and we allow our members to rent that vehicle free of charge so that they can determine whether or not an EV might be something that they want to consider in their future. And for us in a rural area to have an EV and allow our members to use it uh, free of charge, uh, we think is a progressive thought. Uh, the same thing is we, we established a community solar project uh, with the help of Bonneville uh, Environmental, a grant from them, uh, as well as support from members who contributed funds to that solar project. So we have a community solar project so that members can buy into uh, those solar panels and generate uh, and, and take advantage of generating power for their own use where they may not be able to, uh, either because of their location, um, put up solar panels or they may not be able to afford a, a rooftop system on their own, but they can buy in to this particular program. So we do progressive things and we have a general manager and we have a board that's very progressive and so the thought of something like this and how it might be applied in our service area and especially in case of emergencies uh, we we just thought it was a great a great idea to be a part of absolutely no it, uh, it makes perfect sense to me and um, I think it's a pretty pretty strong case for it uh, you know, I, I wanted to ask for maybe for Thomas, um, you know, about the the benefit of pairing that particular hydropower project with the microgrid in a box concept. But I'm also curious, maybe if you could just touch on as well the you know we've we've mentioned Black Start a few times now. Uh, maybe you could describe what that means as well as kind of describe the the benefits of pairing the the felt project um, with the microgrid yeah absolutely and i'll start with a black start what that is so essentially black start is the ability to restart the electric system after an outage and the power system needs black start resources in order to be able to function right because um, there are times when you're going to have outages and you have to be able to restart the system and the, the cause of those outages can vary significantly. You know, it could be uh, isolated to the distribution system. It could be grid-wide. And large hydropower has long been a black start resource. Wherever you have large hydropower in the country, it's uh, typically a staple of the, the black start resource. But you have these small hydropower plants, which, like I mentioned earlier, um, were predominantly designed to provide efficient and affordable electricity that supports the broader grid, but um, but the hydropower plants themselves weren't necessarily designed to uh, to island portions of the grid or to black start portions of the grid. And so what we're doing is um, enabling that capability to help small hydropower to be a black start resource for smaller scale black starts that support individual communities. And the reason we're interested in hydropower is, um, is that within you know, a day or um, across hours of a day, 
it's relatively stable and the diurnal patterns are relatively predictable. So, you know, um, you know, maybe in a, a snowmelt dominated area like Fall River Electric is, you generally know that, you know, you're going to have a little more hydropower generation in the afternoon when the sun is, um, you know, beating down on the snow and melting it uh, relative to the morning after things have refrozen overnight. Um, you know, so there is some variability throughout the day, but but that's pretty well known. And because of that, you're able to plan your um, your operations for this temporary microgrid um, much more effectively than you're able to do for, say, wind or solar, which vary more throughout the day and they vary less predictably throughout the day, right? It's it's harder to predict when a particular set of clouds is going to go over your solar panel and disrupt your generation, um, rather than knowing, um, in general, you know, when the snow is melting or you know what your water levels are going to be for that day. Um, and so it's a more stable resource. And so imagine yourself being in an emergency scenario where you've, you know, maybe you've restored heat to some schools and you have, you know, your customers and your citizens. Uh, seeking shelter in those schools or, you know, something like that, um, you want to be able to tell them, you know, yes, the heat is going to stay on. And um, and so hydropower is a great resource for giving you that uh, that certainty. Yeah, at the end of the day, we, we don't want to freeze people, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, that kind of ties into, uh, you know, another, another good one here, which um, has come up on the podcast recently. We had our friend Malcolm Wolf on from the National Hydropower Association, and he was telling us about how they've been working really hard on some efforts to get money to electrify smaller non-powered dams across the country that maybe have been traditionally used for irrigation or flood control or, you know, other purposes like that. Do you see that as potentially an opportunity to start implementing more of these microgrid projects where, you know, we could take advantage of, um, you know, local small dams that are they're coming online and being powered? The easy answer is yes. Um, the longer answer is that we're looking at the applicability and the value of, of this technology to all small hydropower um, across the U.S., as I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, we do have a lot of small hydropower plants distributed in different regions of the U.S. And so just with the existing small hydropower generation, um, you know, we're able to deploy this technology out at where those small hydropower plants are located nearby uh, to, you know, to communities um, or other critical infrastructure. Um, but specifically with respect to non-power dams, absolutely, Idaho National Lab does a lot of work on um, understanding how we can uh, motivate investment and generation at uh, small non-power dams uh, across the U.S. And, uh, you know, for for your podcast listeners who may or may not know, you know, there's probably an order of magnitude more non-power dams in the U.S. than there are existing hydropower facilities. So if we're talking about the opportunity to increase hydropower generation to contribute to decarbonization, we have to be looking at non-power dams and um, the value that they can bring through adding generation to them. And so um, we do think that capabilities like this, being able to support resilience of uh, communities during emergency events is 
a key value that adding generation to these facilities can bring. And so uh, we have other work that's ongoing that is looking at uh, this capability in addition to other uh, values of adding generation to those non-power dams. Um, you know, like thinking, could we attract uh, new companies or new industry to a particular location through being able to, you know, um, provide this 24-7 clean energy uh, to power their businesses um, and other things like that. You know, and um, obviously right now there's uh, there are different tax incentives and grant programs and things like that that can also um, help to increase the interest in adding generation here. But um, but yeah, we do see relevance um, and uh, and benefits of considering this capability when adding generation to non-power dams. I interrupt this podcast to bring you an advertisement from none other than ourselves. What if the Northwest suddenly lost all hydropower? Half of our local energy would immediately disappear and be replaced with dirty fossil fuels. Greenhouse gases would rise along with our electric bills. Because without hydropower, 80% of the Northwest's renewable energy would be gone. Thankfully, hydropower remains abundant, affordable, and 100% carbon-free. Our power is water. Learn more at northwestriverpartners.org. Now, back to your favorite water power podcast. And that brings up another good point, which is something that, uh, as I mentioned, Bryce Yonker in the intro to this episode, um, you know, he was explaining how, you know, Grid Forward has been working on tax incentives and policies that relate to grid modernization. And I'm curious, maybe for, for Ted, uh, did Fall River seek out some of those when looking at the, uh, I guess, sort of the costs of, of getting into a project like this? Uh, we we did not uh, we uh, because this was a, a, a demonstration unit um, you know that may be something that we do in the future but we didn't do it for this particular project. I'll, I can chime in on that um, though that there is um, a grant program through the Department of Energy right now um, called. 247, um, kind of named after, uh, I believe, the section in the bipartisan infrastructure law that funded it. But um, it, that program is specifically on enhancing resilience using hydropower facilities. And um, so parties like Fall River Electric or Idaho Falls Power or others who are interested in deploying uh, this capability or something similar to it uh, could submit a proposal to that program. Uh, I believe that they had a submission window this summer that is now closed, um, but um, at least in concept, I, I think that they were anticipating running a similar program um, next fiscal year, uh, presuming that they have the um, adequate funds um, after this round of selections. So one of the question that comes up as well, you know, being that this is demonstrative, obviously we're, we're not looking necessarily at a, a tremendous amount of maybe public feedback as, you know, people aren't seeing this uh, being used in that way. But 
Um, you know, for, for Ted, maybe, has there been uh, any feedback, you know, positive, negative, anything like that that you could share as far as maybe, um, you know, what, what even like your board saw, what, you know, maybe what people in the community saw after seeing the news stories come out, anything like that? Uh, we invited uh, to this particular demonstration a number of our local and state um, representatives, government representatives. So we had um, we had county commissioners from both Fremont County, which is our home county, uh, as well as Teton County, which we we have an office and and an operation in in Driggs that serves Teton County. We also had a couple of state uh, legislators that were there. We had other state legislators who were very interested in learning about the project but had other commitments and and couldn't make it to the demonstration site. All of their comments were very positive in the sense that they saw a value in this uh, in the future. Um, and, and we keep going, I keep going back to uh, emergency use because that seemed to be kind of the natural thought processes is in, in, in storm conditions or earthquake conditions or whatever. And that's exactly what I think the county commissioners were were looking at. We also had some uh, county emergency uh, management personnel that were interested in this demonstration and and the outcome of that. We uh, we publish uh, to our members a monthly newsletter. We're going to feature uh, the information about uh, this particular test in a future issue of the newsletter, but we have posted it on our social media pages. Uh, we, we have a very active Facebook uh, page and, and that was posted uh, last month following the demonstration. And all of the comments that we've received, not, not, a, not a tremendous volume of them, but all of the comments that we've received have been very positive in, in, in the fact that we partnered uh, with the INL on this project and the value that it could uh, have potentially for us in the future. And likewise for INL, has there been uh, has there been some good feedback on your end as well? Yeah, absolutely. I continue to be uh, very pleasantly surprised at the number of stakeholders who are interested in uh, this type of demonstration. And um, you know, when I reflect back on it, I think that. The national labs do a tremendous amount of innovation on um, R&D, but you know a lot of that is uh, is upstream of a demonstration, right? And so it uh, you know yields a report or some new analysis or you know those types of things that are are really impactful. But in this moment when we're focused on accelerating the clean energy transition, I think that. You know, showing how we can get that innovation out into the real world, so outside the lab, into the hands of utilities, and um, and make an impact. Um, you know, I think that really resonates with people, and and so um, it's been really humbling, and um, I'm honored to be a part of work like this, um, where we where we have that opportunity to um, to work with great partners like Fall River Electric, and um, and show. You know how can we accelerate uh, the the capabilities and um, and just overall the clean energy transition that um, that utilities and stakeholders have at their disposal um, as they're modernizing their systems. And so it sounds like you know there hasn't really been much in the way of of pushback in terms of uh, any of this, but. 
do you think that there's any convincing that needs to take place to, to maybe get people and communities or, or maybe other utilities on board with something like this? Yeah, I, I agree that there hasn't really been pushback on this. Um, and so, you know, that isn't my primary concern. Um, but I think the biggest challenge is that utilities are needing to make a lot of investments in their system right now related to the clean energy transition. And so, um, you know, they need to do that responsibly for their customers in a way that uh, maintains affordability of electricity. And, um, and so the biggest hurdle that I, you know, uh, see with this, um, this particular capability is that this increases our resilience for relatively rare events. And those, you know, rare events like winter storms or, um, or maybe wildfires uh, during the summer months in certain parts of the country, um, those are impactful and they can have devastating impacts uh, on individuals, businesses, and communities. But, um, you know, but it might be investing in capabilities to um, to reduce those rare events, um, you know, in this environment when we're really focused on um, on making other investments in our system, it's, it's hard to, uh, to motivate those investments. And it's hard to put a dollar value on that resilience capability. So, um, so I don't think it's pushback, but I, I just think that, um, you know, recognizing the kind of set of priorities that utilities have and, um, and thinking about ways to work with utilities so that, um, you know, maybe it's not an either or, but it's a, how can we do both of these things simultaneously? Uh, to increase their resilience at the same time that they're uh, making the other modernization investments that they need to is, is kind of what we need to be focused on and thinking about for deployment of this capability. I, th I think the other thing that's important is the fact that more people need to be made aware of this capability. And uh, so um, this podcast uh, certainly will help in that effort, but, but uh, whatever media attention that the INL uh, can generate or that that hydro facilities can generate in terms of letting uh, utilities be aware of this capability, especially cooperatives that are serving small small areas uh, and would be faced with the, the kinds of emergency situations that we've talked about. Uh, I think that publicity is, is a key um, tool in terms of getting the word out on on this development and how it might be used and um, and and how it might be effective in terms of uh, use by cooperatives and by other electric utilities. And that's something I was definitely excited about today, just, you know, on a personal level is like, you know, if we can uh, spend this time really kind of breaking this down and, and making it something that people can digest, you know, wrap their heads around, um, I think that that's a, you know, a, a tremendous service that, that we can do. And, um, you know, just, just trying to kind of take it from like, okay, you know, I, I read some of the news stories, you know, there's a, um, you know, shipping container that cr contains a microgrid and uh, connected to hydropower, but like, what does this all ultimately mean at the end of the day? And, and especially, you know, what it means for uh, the people who could, you know, potentially benefit, as you mentioned, you know, these are probably extreme situations we're looking at, but at the same time, uh, I think that, Things like, um, you know, the wildfires in Hawaii and, 
Um, you know, even just the, the blanket of smoke that we've had here in the Northwest for the last few days alone, it does make you certainly more aware of like, you know, there's a, there's a value in investing in these things and, and being prepared for them. Um, and that's something that we've, we've heard from some other utilities as well. One thing I wanted to get maybe a little bit of insight on for, um, from, you know, kind of the utility perspective is like for Fall River, you know, how do you weigh, uh, maybe the investment in a, in a project like this for um, adding resiliency for the worst case scenario versus, you know, say investing in buying Teslas for people in your community to, to drive. I mean, where, you know, what are those, what are those conversations kind of look like when you're trying to balance these different things? Well, I think, I think that's the case is balancing it. And that, that's what our board is and our general manager, they're, they're great at, at determining, okay, what is the direction we need to go? Um, they've been working most recently on a long-term technology plan uh, for our particular cooperative. So as you say, there, there are lots of demands on a small amount of dollars that uh, a cooperative has to invest in these things. So I think it's... Um, I think it's a balancing act, and fortunately, we have a great board and a great GM that um, that have been able to do an excellent job of that. Uh, so I don't know what the future holds for microgrid in a box in terms of specific to Fall River Electric beyond the demonstration standpoint, but just being aware of it and being involved in it and seeing how it operates uh, is a, is a value in terms of determining okay, what what do we do about it going forward. The other thing I was going to mention is um, uh, when when we were talking about why was Fall River selected or why was the felt hydro facility selected, as Thomas talked about, um, obviously a lot of the characteristics of the hydro facility itself are very similar to other small hydros around the countryside. But the other thing is felt is a very remote location. So the hydro facility itself is is on the Teton River, but it's deep in a canyon. And so microgrid in a box is set up at the top of the canyon, and, and we've got transmission lines coming up from the canyon to serve that. So it's not like um, in the case of, of a municipal operation where a hydro facility might be in the middle of a community. This is a very remote location. So it's a great demonstration of how this can work in virtually any kind of environment in terms of trying to generate power from a hydro into this microgrid in a box. Well, that really ties into where I wanted to kind of explore next with you all too is, you know, so often we hear about how challenging it is to, to get the public on board with infrastructure upgrades because that often means new power and transmission lines and construction in their backyard. And, you know, as you touched on here, you know, you're talking about um, lines coming out of a canyon, you know, it's probably a pretty big overhaul if you wanted to ever somehow maybe change the way that that functions. When we're talking about something that fits into a, con a shipping container like this, um, I mean, do we see this as maybe a, an opportunity where we could take some of the pressure off of those construction projects and, and be able to connect communities or connect grids without having to you know, do the, the whole battle over where to put the power lines? You know, there's been a lot of uh, utility developments across the country, uh, you know, doing distribution, you know, upgrade deferments and transmission deferments, you know, using localized 
uh, you know, battery energy storage systems and, and localized generation to help, you know, mediate that, that congestion, that, that congested power flow over that line. Um, you know, usually that's, uh, as it's, you know, typically termed, that's a deferment. So typically it doesn't solve the problem indefinitely. Uh, you know, you still have to, uh, you know, do your line modifications or, or new additions or whatever, but it gives you time to, to plan and, and really, you know, develop your system more effectively. So it's really a time, a, a, you know, a time buyer and helps you out. But what it also does is it helps you with more of that localized resiliency benefit on top of that. And typically one thing that you can get with distributed microgrids and energy resources and battery storage systems like these is you can provide additional availability of power that you can't do with a bulk grid system. You know, it doesn't matter how many distribution lines or transmission lines you run, um, you, you get to a point of, of diminishing returns where you can't improve your, you know, your availability numbers beyond that without doing localized generation. So I guess the, the question I have from here, you know, as I understand it, this is all, you know, this is a, a demonstration ultimately at the end of the day, right? I mean, this isn't uh, something that's necessarily going to stay here and, and everything like that. So where does the project go from here, um, you know, for INL? What do you see as kind of the next steps in, in developing the, the microgrid in a box? Yeah, well, let me first um, speak to it from the perspective of, our work enabling this capability for small hydropower plants, and then uh, Kurt can chime in on uh, the microgrid box specifically, and you know um, the the road trip or the um, you know next uh, locations where where that's going to be deployed. But um, with respect to the small hydropower Black Star capability, you know as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we've done two field demonstrations now supported by a lot of analytical work. And um, the field demonstrations in particular have been really insightful um, because you know there's nothing that compares to, uh, to getting data from the field and understanding what you know, works as expected and um, what needs to be improved and uh, things like that. And so based on this uh, cumulative work that we've done, uh, one of our focus areas is going to be on distilling the insights into recommendations that others can use. So, you know, if another small utility um, comes to us and says, we want to um, consider this technology for our system, we'll be able to have a set of, you know, maybe questions and corresponding uh, choose your own adventure, um, like, okay, is it a Francis turbine or a Kaplan turbine? Um, do you have digital controls or analog controls? Um, you know, how large is the plant relative to the critical load you want to serve? You know, some other key considerations like that. And then um, we'll be able to uh, support them, work with them to, um, to, uh, to take the next steps with considering this technology for their location and understand what it would actually take to uh, to deploy this solution. Uh, so that's a lot of, of what we're going to be doing on the Blackstar capability. Um, but Kurt, do you want to uh, talk a little bit about uh, 
the next steps for the microgrid in a box? Yeah, uh, we were talking earlier about the, you know, the resiliency use case of, you know, localized microgrid in a box or, or battery energy storage systems. Um, but, you know, we're thinking broader than, than just that particular application because, you know, as we said, you know, cost and affordability are, are uh, you know, big concerns. Um, but also, you know, resiliency and availability and of power it has been an issue too. So you kind of have a balancing act of how much extra do you want to pay for that, you know, better availability and, and better resiliency. Um, but what we're interested in is is deploying things like the microgrid in the box or, uh, you know, highly advanced controls coupled up with battery energy storage and localized, uh, you know, energy resources distributed around, you know, distribution and transmission systems and providing uh, more coordinated and stacked use cases of those assets. So I'm not, it's not only providing resiliency or the ability to move and be relocated for black start emergency, uh, you know, services and conditions, it can every day, 24-7, be providing you know, services to the broader grid system, but also providing that resiliency and backup power to that localized critical load customer. So we're really looking at, at the coordination across the, the distribution system and, and looking at those controls and what it's going to take in terms of control advancements, communication, and coordination between these, you know, software and, and management systems to be able to uh, manage that, all the flows and, and the usages across that grid. So that kind of takes me to uh, to the next, you know, logical place to go when, when looking to the future, which is uh, from, the, from the perspective of Fall River, um, you know, you mentioned that doing this project, uh, you know, kind of helps you be aware of of the microgrid in a box and, and maybe consider it for the future, but uh, what other kinds of modernization and resilience efforts uh, do you foresee coming to your community in the near future? We're uh, working on um, upgrades. Uh, we've seen so much growth in the northern part of our service area, which is the Island Park, uh, Idaho area. That's a very uh, extensive recreation area and um, uh, a lot of second home um, vacation home ownership in that area, and also the growth in uh, the West Yellowstone, Montana area. Uh, West Yellowstone was able to purchase uh, 80 acres from the Forest Service in the last um, the last handful of years, and they are in the process of developing uh, how uh, how they're going to integrate that 80 acres, uh, both residentially and commercially into the community of, of West Yellowstone. It's a, it's a resort community. So like practically every resort area in the West, uh, it's facing housing crisis. Uh, and the fact that uh, there, there are, there's not enough housing for workers, especially seasonal workers. And so the community is trying to resolve that uh, through this additional acreage that they have obtained. And so um, we're upgrading our high voltage system. Uh, it's a five-year project. Uh, we're into year, I believe, number two in, into that. So that's where a, um, a big bulk of our uh, expansion efforts are going, and, and that is in improving the existing facilities that we have. We have a very 
uh, resilient, reliable power grid uh, within our service area. And uh, we take great satisfaction in, in maintaining that and upgrading it. And so that's where most of our dollars are going is ensuring that there is electricity, electrical power needed in, in these growth areas of our service territory. No, oh, that's fantastic. And, uh, you know, sounds like for the, for the folks out there, there's a, a lot of good things coming their way and, and a lot to look forward to. Um, I guess, you know, the, the last thing is we're kind of winding down here. The last question I'll do is, is kind of just pitch it out and, uh, and, you know, try to try to keep it somewhat organized, but for the, for the grid in a box, uh, specifically and for Idaho national lab, I mean, any, any other kind of final words you guys want to leave us on just in terms of, you know, maybe things we didn't cover today that you'd like to make sure people are aware of about this project. Um, I'll chime in there on the. Um, this is part of a, a broader effort that's on hybridization of hydropower with um, other resources. And so, um, you know, we see this as a, a very beneficial new capability that can be added to a set of hydropower plants. But um, we also have ongoing activities on integrating batteries with hydropower plants of all scales. Um, and the use cases for that integration um, vary depending on where you're at. You know, it, um, it could be resilience um, like we're talking about here, but out in California um, in the, uh, for plants that are participating in the, in the um, California energy market, it could be to get more value out of the generation from that hydropower being able to shift the um, energy that the hydropower plant is producing during hours of the day when uh, prices are low and then shifting that to uh, hours when prices are high. Um, you know, it could be about providing frequency regulation or um, increasing the amount of firm capacity that, uh, that you can provide via the facility. Um, we're also doing work on integration of solar and hydropower. Um, and most notably, you know, are there benefits to putting uh, floating PV panels on reservoirs uh, to reduce the evapotranspiration from the reservoir? Um, you know, because we're warming temperatures in the reservoirs are increasing uh, the temperature of the water and the evapotranspiration. Um, and, um, and so solar panels can uh, can cool the water and can reduce the evapotranspiration. And you also get higher efficiency um, out of the panels when they're cooled. Um, and so we're looking at all sorts of different hydropower hybrids to understand uh, opportunities to, uh, to get more value out of our existing hydropower plants and motivate um, investment in new resources, for example, adding generation to non-power dams. Um, and so uh, we're always looking for interested industry partners. If anyone um, hears this podcast and um, wants to uh, to learn more, feel free to reach out to us. Um, you can reach out to me personally, thomas.mosier at inl.gov, or reach out to our communications department, and we're happy to engage with you. Well, I know we have at least a few of our, uh, our other member utilities as audience members, so I, I hope they take you up on that offer. Yeah, thanks for that background, Thomas. Um, and, yeah, and from our perspective with microgrid in the box, you know, lots, 
a lot of interest has been generated with this demonstration, but also other activities that we have going on with with uh, different collaborators. And you know, I think our our future is really looking, as I mentioned, across the, the distribution systems and and better integration and advancements of those controls, but also you know looking at different format changes to to these types of systems to make them you know more applicable to different you know deployability or, or use case conditions. So you know this one was designed in particular for you know for military uses. Of course it's usable for other for other things, but you know we're we're investigating other options for uh, you know deployability, different kinds of packaging, um, ability to stack units and so you can expand capacity very quickly. And, and what it's going to take to, you know, to do those type, kinds of systems. So really looking towards the future of, uh, you know, just modifications to, uh, to the way that the systems are engineered and, and integrated. And then also on, on those controls advancements is really where we're looking to do a lot of our research and development. Well, I appreciate everyone for for making the time to make this happen today. We're we're definitely getting down to the to the very end of this thing, and uh, you know, it's a lot it's a lot of ground to cover, and uh, I'm sure it's you know it's not always easy to try and condense it into um, you know an hour's worth of podcasting, but uh, we made it happen, and uh, I don't know my my uh, knowledge has certainly been expanded and and i feel like uh, i have a pretty good grasp of it now compared to where i was about an hour ago so um really thankful for that and uh the last thing that we do here uh you know the it'll be it'll be one more kind of organization project for me to 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 wind through it but um the last thing we do here on the podcast is we just uh we kind of get off the topic of of today's discussion we open it up try and Kind of have a nice, uh, a nice little end cap on things, and um, just give everyone the the floor for um, something I like to share, which is just a little bit of kind of good general advice that we can give to our listeners. And uh, like you know, I always tell people it, it has to be, or it doesn't have to be anything that we discuss today or anything work related. It can just be um, some good advice you like to live by or something that stood out to you recently. And so. Uh, I think in the the spirit of staying organized, I'll uh, go to to Kurt first and go alphabetical on this one. Uh, and so, it, yeah, if, if uh, maybe Kurt, you could start us off with uh, just something that uh, is valuable to you that you could pass on to our listeners. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think um, now knowing the uh, some of the recent you know bills that were passed and uh, you know federally for energy incentives. The, uh, the IRA bill, I think people being knowledgeable about uh, the ability to get, you know, tax credits and rebates on, on energy efficient appliances, uh, you know, heat pump water heaters, heat pumps for space conditioning is really a good thing for people to know about. It just started earlier this year and, you know, that's going to really help out our, uh, our local utilities in managing that load growth if we're putting in you know, more efficient systems and taking advantage of the incentives that are available to us. Certainly, certainly. No, that's a, that's a really good one. And, and I, I think that, yeah, people should, uh, you know, whether it's a utility listening now or, or maybe somebody, um, you know, who, who hasn't gotten in contact with their utility to find out about some of those things, it's a, a good opportunity or a good reminder to do that. Uh, we'll go to, uh, we'll go to you next, Ted. Well, I think um, uh, we're probably 
preaching to the choir, or I'm preaching to the choir, so to speak, uh, but we, we need to uh, continue to value our hydroelectric facilities throughout the Pacific Northwest. 84% of the power that we deliver to our customers, our members, come from hydroelectricity. And of course, about 15% of that is produced by our own hydroelectric, um, uh, hydroelectric facilities. And the rest uh, comes uh, primarily through um, BPA and, um, and PNGC. So there's been a lot of conversation um, in recent years, and it, it seems to never go away if, if, in, if, in fact, it doesn't heighten in terms of uh, this idea, the concept of removing the lower Snake River dams to restore salmon. There's no guarantee that removing those dams would restore salmon, and yet the impact that it would have on us as a cooperative not only the loss of power generation, but the effect that it would have on uh, resiliency of the system and rates to our to our customers. We'd be looking at, at potentially a 25% increase in, to our customers to have those dams gone. So uh, we we need to we as utilities that depend on hydroelectricity need to continue to shout loudly that. Uh, these dams are valuable and they're important to us, and we need to maintain those. And, and there's no real viable replacement for them, and especially no guarantee that breaching those dams is going to restore salmon. So continue to shout loudly that we need to save those dams. Ted, you sound like you're doing my job. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I appreciate that a lot. I really do. Um, that's, uh, you know, it's something that um, I, I, you know, we're always trying to encourage our, our members to, uh, you know, to, to voice up and, um, you know, speak on, on our behalf. And, you know, you know, we often are representing you guys. But uh, as far as, you know, who whose voice really matters, I mean, ultimately, it's it's the utilities, it's the communities, it's the the people out there that, um, you know, really are, are most impacted by this that need to be heard from the most. So, um, yeah, I appreciate your, your advocacy and, and also advocating for others to be advocates. Uh, and then lastly, we'll go to Thomas. Um, thanks. I think, you know, my uh, insight will uh, align with Kurtz a little bit. Um, you know, there's so much transitioning happening right now, and um, there's a recognition that even more transition is on the horizon. Um, but um, I hear from a lot of utilities that uh, that you know very few of those technologies that we talk about wanting to deploy are deployable now um, for a number of factors, either the maturity of the technology or the cost of the technology. Um, and so, you know, I, I can imagine that as a utility, it's um, a really challenging uh, position to be in uh, for, for many of our utilities. Although in the Pacific Northwest, you know, we're so fortunate to have hydropower as um, such a large representation of, of the resource. Um, but there are a lot of programs to help support various elements of this transition. In addition to the tax incentives, um, there are demonstration opportunities through the Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations for a whole host of different technologies. Um, so ensure that you're familiar with that. 
And there's also um, a growing portfolio of um, technical assistance opportunities uh, to get utilities support in navigating the transition and uh, different um, investment decisions that you might be considering. Uh, so, you know, certainly feel free to reach out to me. Um, you know, I'm always happy to engage. But uh, another technical assistance program that I want to make sure that people are aware to uh, aware of is clean energy to communities C2C, which is, um, you know, which is a technical assistance program for communities uh, to help them navigate all the uncertainty that um, you know that we're facing today. So, um, you know, if um, if that seems like it would be of interest to you, um, you know, reach out to them. Um, if you just Google it, you'll be able to find it. And there are lots of different mechanisms within that program uh, to help provide support. Excellent, excellent. And that, um, yeah, I think it sounds like uh, people got some good, some good homework to do, if nothing else, at the end of this one. So, uh, you know, we've we've studied up. Now we'll we'll send everyone off to uh, to go get after it, and uh, you know, go go be advocates, go be energy champions, and um, you know, find any avenue you can to to be supportive of hydro, be supportive of utilities, and be supportive of uh, getting your, you know, getting your grid modernized, right? So um, really appreciate all the time that you guys have all put in today. Um, you know, I, 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 like I said, I know it's, you know, maybe not always an easy subject to try and condense down like this, but uh, I appreciate everyone's efforts for doing it and, and for all of you sharing your story and, and the partnership as well. So, so thank you a lot for that. Thank you for having us. We're happy to be on the podcast and hope this has been of interest and value to your listeners. Same here as far as Fall River Electric is concerned. We're glad to be a part of uh, your podcast and appreciate the invitation and especially appreciate our relationship with INL. Yeah, appreciate the time. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone. Well, if you didn't learn a new thing or two today, you might want to go back and listen to that one again. Now, to be fair, I wouldn't blame you since we ended up covering so much ground today, but the beautiful thing about streaming this podcast is you can literally listen back as many times as you'd like. Speaking of learning new things, well, uh, I'm learning how to deal with some frustrating audio gremlins here at River Partners HQ with regards to making sure this podcast comes out sounding nice each and every episode. So I think we have it all figured out. Uh, the, the thing sounds pretty good through my headphones and computer, but if you've made it this far and you weren't pleased with the sound quality, you can let me know by heading to nwriverpartners.org and using the contact form there. In addition to telling me what a complete hack of a podcast producer I am, you can also give us tips on future episodes, let me know what you think of the podcast as a whole, or share what your favorite episode is to go back and listen to. We've also got an email address you can use, which is simply info at nwriverpartners.org. And along those lines, please give us a glowing five-star review if you don't think I suck, or even if you do, uh, at least give us a nice five-star rating for our awesome guests who certainly deserve it. And I think that that includes all three of our fantastic guests today. Your reviews help us grow our reach and expand our audience by boosting up the ranking of the damn podcast. You should also tap the bell icon to turn on notifications so you don't miss any future episodes, which arrive every other Friday. 
can't wait two weeks and want to know what's happening over here in Hydropower land, visit us at NW River Partners on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn to stay in the loop. I've had about enough audio editing, so I'm going to go ahead and put the wrap on this thing and quit while I'm under the impression that I'm ahead. See ya.